0: I'm going to start off with a big question. Uh, And maybe it's interesting. Why did God save you? Why did God save you? What is the purpose of your salvation? You're like, whoa, it's a big question. It's only nine after ten. I've already been slightly scolded. What is the purpose of my salvation? Are we going there right now? Maybe you've got to to go-to answer to bring him glory. Maybe it's, to exalt God's attributes is why he saved us. He wanted to show His both his justice and his mercy. Maybe it's to showcase Christ for all eternity. That's why he saved me. To make you his worshiper. To make you into someone who loves him more than all else. But did you know that God saved you so that you would love one another? It's a great time to take a subtle glance around the room, see who's here. These are the people that God saved you to love. See, loving one another is more than a byproduct of our salvation. It's not just like, God saved me to make me worship him, and now I love others. Today, we're going to see that it's a purpose of our salvation. I won't say it's the only purpose. We know it's not. But it is a purpose of our salvation. In 1 Peter 1, verses 22 to 25, the Apostle Peter continues his series of commands to the first century saints of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. Now, there's much we don't know about these saints that Peter's writing to, and some of that is just because of the reality that Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, is a big place. It's twice the size of California. Now although the area he was writing to didn't quite include all of that it's still writing to massive area includes really a lot of the west coast kind of if you imagine as comparison to the states it was a large area writing to different ethnicities different linguistic backgrounds different religious backgrounds writing to an area that stretched from urban centers some of the greatest cities of the ancient world to probably backwater villages we really don't even know how many Individual churches. This letter that uh, Peter wrote and Sylvanus brought. How many individual churches it went to? What we do know about them is that these churches had had uniformly left the futile way of life inherited from their forefathers to submit to and to place their hope to Jesus Christ. We also know that these churches were facing persecution. It probably wasn't all, you know, at the point of sword, we're going to kill you if you, don't, if, if you don't give up your allegiance to Christ, although there may have been some of that. But really, it was probably more the beginning of persecution getting bad. They were ostracized. They were maligned. Really, if you imagine what Christians go through in colleges and public high schools, that's, the, that's, the, that's very much what they were going through. So Peter had begun this letter in the most encouraging way, encouraging them by the greatness of their salvation in verses 1 through 12. And then he begins a series of commands. He commands them in verse 13 to set their hope on the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. In verses 14 to 16, he commands them to be holy. In verses 17 to 21, he commands them to conduct their lives in fear. And now in verses 22 to 25, Peter commands, but with a more, uh, more, Focus a more specific focus. He commands them really how they are to live out their holiness, how how they were to live out, conducting themselves in fear. And we see that he commands them at the end of verse twenty-two to fervently love one another from the heart. So we're going to read now from First Peter one. Go ahead and uh, if your Bible's not already open there, and I'll go ahead and start at verse seventeen and go up to verse twenty-five. If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have in obedience to the truth, purified yourselves for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. And let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for um, the blessing of being around your word this morning. And we thank you for preserving it for us through the ages. We thank you, Father, that we have the freedom now to hear it exposited. And we pray that your spirit would work Uh, to communicate your word clearly through me to the hearts of each of us here. We pray, Father, that we'd be transformed, that we'd be transformed from one degree of glory to another, that we'd become more like your Son, Jesus Christ. And how uh, practical, really, this morning is as we speak about loving one another. And really, we want to have the same love for one another that Jesus Christ has for us. Please, Father, give us ears that are, are, are ready to hear, not just with a uh, passivity, not just with a understanding, but with a aim towards application, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1 Peter 1, verses 22 to 25, Peter persuades the saints to love one another. And he's going to do that, you see in your notes there, kind of through through d- different tactics. He gives a command to them, and that should be persuasive to us. We are God's children. We just read about conducting our lives in fear. We're, we've looked in the past about our holy calling. Just the fact that we're commanded should be persuasive to us. He's also going to persuade them through, con, through convicting their hearts that this is what they were saved for. And then we're going to see that he persuades them can't remember the, the third point is, oh, through, through their capacity of love. And that also would be persuasive to them. now, thanks dear. Okay, so uh, we're going to see how Peter persuades the saints to love one another. Let's begin with that command to love. And you notice that in the notes I've got verse 22b, and that means the second half of the verse. And I'm going to start for the second half of the verse because that is where the main, uh, the main verb of this verse is. It's where the command is. And we're going to see that the beginning of verse 22 supports that main command. So let's go ahead and look at what the main command is. Fervently love one another from the heart. Fervently love one another from the heart. What proceeds in the beginning of verse 22 and what follows in verses 23 to 25 support that main main command. Now that command, love one another, we have to ask ourselves, what does it mean to love? And we're, we, we, we keep coming back to this really every time Scripture commands us to love because it can be a, a slippery thing that we can easily lose hold of. At times, love feels like a feeling. Sometimes we just make it into an intellectual choice, a commitment. Sometimes we think about love being a sacrifice. If we look at the Greek word for love here, it means to have a, a warm regard for to be interested in another, to cherish them, to have affection for them. See, love is not simply a matter of choice, but it is a matter of affection. This is a love here is a warm word. It also includes the idea of having a high esteem of, or even to find satisfaction in something to take pleasure in them. To put worth on someone, and then to have an affection that follows. Now, of course, with that love, it's not just the way that you feel towards someone, the affection you have towards them, the value placed on them. It's also what we do because of that. It is love expressed and practiced and put into action. But it's not only action. Now, before this word was 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 used in the Bible, its usage in in pre biblical Greek, it also had the idea of choosing or preferring. It's a love that makes distinctions, that chooses an object freely. So it is to see, it is to choose, it is to value, it is to have affection for. It's love and affection based on what one one, uh, linguist says, deep appreciation and high regard. So in summary, love appreciates, love values, love chooses, and love takes pleasure in. And that is what we are to be doing with one another. Now, we know that in ourselves, apart from Christ, there is no good thing. That apart from our salvation, all righteousness is as filthy rags. And that's why we are shocked by the fact that God loves sinners, that he places his love upon us, that he chooses to value us. It is His grace that makes that choice. Now, we as saved creatures, when we love one another, we are to value them and to have affection for them, to take pleasure in them. It's not just some kind of cold, calculating, I love you, so I'm coming to church. I love you, so I'm sending you an email. I love you, so I'll pray for you. Without warmth, love includes this warmth. Now, the object of love here is one another. The focus here in this verse isn't all people, though we can see in Scripture we're commanded to love our neighbor, and as Jesus taught in, in, in the parable of the, of the Good Samaritan, includes those we don't know, that we're not like. The focus on this verse, though, is loving God's people. Your fellow sojourners, those who are aliens with you, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, going through... This life as exiles, as Peter talks about it. In the beginning of this verse 22, Peter says, Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your soul for a sincere love of the brethren. This is a brotherly love, this is a familial love. Loving those whom God Himself has chosen and loves and is devoted to. Now, in this word, one another, there is no room for limitations. It's not love one another who has common interest. It's not love one another who is the most like you out of the church. It's not love one another who has a similar background, who is generous. It's easy to love those who are generous. Maybe someone who makes you laugh or who makes you feel good. It's not just loving those who are pleasant. This loving one another includes all of us. Not all of us are all of those things all the time. The apostles were taught from the Lord Jesus about this love for one another. Jesus, during the Last Supper, said to his disciples, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. The Apostle John speaks about the same kind of love. This is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another just as he commanded us. And here Peter, another one of Jesus' closest disciples, repeats this command to love one another. In your Bibles there, in the New New American Standard, before the command to love one another from the heart is the word fervently. I think the, the ESV has earnestly it's a vibrant word it's the same word uh, used in Luke two twenty four, describing how Jesus prayed in the garden and being in agony he was praying very fervently that's that word there and it goes on to describe Jesus's prayer sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground did Jesus pray fervently in the garden Asking his father to take this cup from him if it were possible? Did he pray earnestly? That's how we are to love one another. It's a pretty strong word. For those of you who are fans of a sports team, you, you understand a little of this idea of fervency. It doesn't matter how much your team has disappointed you, how long since it's been in the playoffs, how long since it's won a championship. You fervently, you earnestly, you continuously watch and cheer game after game, year after year with zeal because you're a fan. That's a little of what's behind this word love one another. Love one another like you're their fan. Like you're devoted to them. No matter how much they disappoint you, you are zealous for them. See, a fervent, constant love is committed, not fickle. It's engaged, not passive. It's eager, not reluctant. It's zealous, not not docile. Love is to be fervent regardless of relational challenges. And we know that... God brings this many sinners, even those who have new life in Christ, and there's going to be challenges, right? If there's challenges in marriage with a spouse that you love the most, the person in the world you love the most, how much more so all these other people who you don't love as much as your spouse? See, love looks at disagreements with the saints, offenses, as there's going to be, conflicts not as as roadblocks that's going to end a relationship but more as potholes we're going to get through this not as dead ends but objects in the road just because you've got weeds in your garden doesn't mean it's time to sell the house has your love been fervent for one another and one another without exclusion for all the saints here. And we know we focus on the saints here, but really we could extend that to all the saints. Peter expands at the end of verse 22. Fervently love one another from the heart. That's what it says in the New American Standard. If you have the ESV, it says from a pure heart. And commentators are, are, are really really divided whether that pure is in the original Greek or, or not, but whether it says from the heart or from the pure heart, really it's the same idea there. The focus is sincerity. The genuine source of this love is from the heart. It's not about polite smiles and handshakes, but smiling and nodding It's not just about tolerating. It's love that has integrity, that is real, that's affectionate, that as its root will see in God's own love. And that's some of the capacity that we're going to talk about. Now, this is not to to suggest that each of you has that same intensity of love for every other person here. We know that there's going to be close relationships, that we are... uh, limited by the amount of distance, we're limited by the amount of time that we have, we have relationships often that center in in care groups. So when I talk about this kind of loving from the heart, it doesn't mean that you aren't going to have some relationships with some people that are closer than others. I wish that I was more infinite and that I could have the same, experience the same relationship with all of you. I wish I had more time with all of you, meals with all of you. But just because you can't have every person in your home doesn't mean that you can't love every person from your heart. So practically, what does that look like? It is a commitment to one another. It is being committed to one another, to every person here regardless of differences, and forgiving offenses and dealing with offenses. One of the best ways is praying for one another. If you want to earnestly love one another from the heart, pray for every person at Cornerstone Bible Church, especially your care group, but not only. You can ask me or the elders and we can get you a list of those who are at Cornerstone Bible Church. Even just pray for one of those dear brothers and sisters each day. It doesn't have to be exhaustive, but that's how you love one another earnestly from the heart. I know as I work through praying for all of you that my heart is drawn to each of you, and that is how your hearts will be drawn to each other. Being generous towards one another. Taking someone to lunch and having someone over for dinner. That's how you cultivate loving one another fervently from the heart. Speaking truth to one another as you have opportunity. Trying to be as much benefit to the other person as you can. What does this person need to hear from me? Are they, are they discouraged? How can I encourage them? Are they being stubborn? How can I exhort them? What do they need to hear from God's word that I can communicate to them? You see how useful you can be to your brothers and sisters. Spending time with one another, praying with one another, discussing God's word with one another. We try to do that in care groups, but it doesn't need to be limited there. But you want to allow yourself to be impacted by the spiritual health of one another. You want to allow yourself to be impacted by the spiritual health of one another. Now, that doesn't mean that you're falling apart when someone else is falling apart, but that you are concerned. You know, and imagine that there was some kind of infectious disease going around here. Okay? You would be attentive to that person's disease. You'd probably come with it's one of those mask things, right? You don't, you don't want that. It doesn't mean that you're going to stop loving them, but you'd be attentive to that. And honestly, that's just self-preservation. It's not being mean. It's just self-preservation. So what love does, love requires that same kind of attention to someone else's health. But not so that you don't get what they have. But so that you can be used in their lives. So that you would know how to pray for them. So that, they, so that you would know how to bring what you're reading from God's word and bring it into their lives. The the idea here is that if someone has an infectious disease, you're all going to be aware of that, right? You're going to be paying attention to that. So being paying attention to one another's spiritual needs. Don't let it impact you by shunning them, but by drawing towards them. This is what fervent love for one another from the heart looks like. Now, this is just a sampling. We can include many other things from bringing meals to, I mean, there's there's no limitation, but to being attentive, how can I be used in their lives to communicate God's love for me to them? Now, perhaps you don't feel like loving, and loving can be exhausting. Maybe some of you have been hurt in the past, and we, we hear that a lot. Oh, I've been hurt by churches. I tried loving them. I wasn't loved back. They loved me in a way that I didn't appreciate. Sometimes it's easier to stay home. Uh, one of the uh, um, care group elders at Faith Bible Church, he, 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 he was getting ready, the uh, care group leaders, to uh, talk about the upcoming care group year. And he said that any time it it's night for care group, People have that I don't want us. As a care group leader, I've experienced that too. I love my care group, but I feel that. Like, oh, I don't want us. It's, it's, It's easier to be at home. Maybe you feel that after the holidays. You are peopled out. It was exhausting. It's time to hibernate. It's time to console yourself in a warm blanket. And I know some of you are more extroverted. You can't wait to be with people. Some of you are more introverted, and it takes more energy to be with people. So, we need convictions. We need to be persuading ourselves. And one way to persuade ourselves is that God commands this fervent, earnest loving one another from the heart. But there's another conviction here that conviction to love in the beginning of verse 22. We can be persuaded. Beginning in verse 22, since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. In your notes there, you you, you can see at the bottom, I I put both the New American Standard and the ESV for this verse. And I just put the ESV there because I know that not all of you have an ESV Bible, but it matches really well with the Greek. So I'm just going to follow along with, 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 with that for this point. Peter describes what happened having purified your souls. This is in the past perfect tense. This is something that's already been done. Purified has the idea of being cleansed from defilement, to be made appropriate for worship. And this was done in the Jewish world for those who wanted to go to the temple. The Apostle Paul talks about purifying himself from his time in the Gentile world before going into the a temple. Jesus, uh, uh, or, or in John eleven twenty five, 25, the disciple John says, Now the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. They were going th- through a cleansing to be ready for worship. Now, the, what Peter's talking about here is not about ritual external purification. He's talking about their souls. He says, since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls. Or in the ESV, having purified your souls. Inside them, they have become purified. They've been cleansed. They've been made appropriate to God's presence. This is what we saw previously in, in verse 2 of First Peter. The sanctifying work of the Spirit. It's why we are called saints. We are made holy. Those who have put their faith in Christ Jesus, we have been cleansed for God's courts. We've been washed for his worship. We've been sanitized for his service. Now, how did this happen? That's what happened, having purified your souls. Now, how does it happen? By your obedience to the truth. See, this purification of our souls is the result of obedience to the truth. Now, Peter's not teaching that we can make ourselves pure through obeying God's commands. We know that the impurity of our sin, the stain of sin, can't be made up for, can't be atoned for any number of good deeds. We can't just look and say, well, I'm feeling dirty because of my sin, and God's commands say to do this, this, and this. I'm going to do what his commands say so I can get rid of this guilty feeling. That's really what works salvation is. The truth that Peter's talking about here is the gospel. It is the good news that God takes away the guilt of our sin as we place our faith in the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. And we trust that when he died and came back to life, that it was for our justification, for our being made right with him. Now often when we talk about this truth, we talk about believing the truth or trusting the truth, putting our hope in this truth. We don't often talk about obeying the truth it kind of sounds off to say it's when did you believe in jesus not when did you obey jesus but that's what peter's talking about here and obeying the truth is a perfectly valid way of describing this see the gospel is not an option in a buffet of world beliefs when we proclaim the gospel when we proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. We're not like the people serving samples at Costco. We don't just just have a little stall set up and you can come by and get a sample if you like, right? There's no Costco person shouting out, take this, right? That that would be (laughs) off-putting. But when we proclaim the gospel, we speak on behalf of God. Reminds me of Acts 17, verses 30 to 31, Paul's speech on Mars Hill. Therefore, having overlooked the times of of ignorance, excuse me, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man, Jesus Christ, whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. The gospel is a command to repent. It's a command from the creator to his creation, from the sovereign to his rebel subjects. And that's how Jesus begins his ministry. Mark 1 verses 14 to 15. Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of kingdom and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Those are two commands there. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus authoritatively commanded repentance and belief. And what is the right response to a command? If you're a parent, you know. It's obedience with a happy heart, ideally, if not just obedience. To repent is to obey the truth, and to believe is to obey the truth. John uh, brings us so clearly together in John 3, verse 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. And you see that parallel just perfectly there. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life. And you could switch those around. He who obeys the Son has eternal life, but he who does not believe it in the Son will not see life. The good news requires that we obey God's commands regarding how to view the helpless state we are in because of our sin. That we deserve judgment, that we have no hope apart from Jesus Christ. It requires that we obey his command how to be a saved, not by our good works, not by trusting in ourselves, but by faith in Jesus Christ alone. And it also commands us what we are to do after we are saved. When we obey God's command to turn from our sin, to cease from our efforts to save ourselves, to trust in Christ alone, to submit to His reign in our lives, our souls are purified. It is having been purified through obedience to the truth that we are, and here's the why, here's the purpose. For a sincere brotherly love. For a sincere brotherly love. This is this is this is great stuff here. This is great. Why? Our souls have been purified. Yes, and you might, uh, as your kids are learning uh, a, a catechism and the purpose of life, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. As Piper talks about, to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. We know what the purpose of our life is. It's the purpose of our salvation. But you were purified here in this verse for the purpose of affectionate family love. For Philadelphia, love—it's a surprising truth. God just, God didn't just purify us to love one another. God's intention was not in saving you was not isolation. It was not, and like that's maybe part of the problem with quiet times. Like that is not the peak of the Christian experience. It's wonderful. It's not even worshiping together. Although that's wonderful, it includes, it does not, not only those things, it includes loving one another. When we adopted our second daughter, Nora, we had many motives. One was that we longed for another child. We longed for our first daughter, Margot. We longed for another child. But we also had another motive there we wanted Margot to have a sister. In my heart, those motives were inseparable i wanted to love another child but i also wanted another child for Margot to love as her her sister our purpose in being adopted by the father includes loving one another this is why we are chosen according to the foreknowledge of god the father this is why And it says in verse three, he has, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope. This is why he's adopted us, why he's given us new birth, so that we would love one another. Peter talks about the nature of this love. It is a sincere love of the brethren, too. It is a sincere brotherly love. It's without hypocrisy, without pretense. It's not feigned. It's not putting on a show. See, and sincere brotherly love will require Effort on your part. Often, it requires us humbling ourselves, to seeing our place in God's family appropriately, to have an accurate view of ourselves in the mirror, to be humbled by our remaining sin. It requires us to confess our sin against one another, to tell one another how we sinned against them, to ask for forgiveness. Requires us to express our concern for one another, to confront sin in one another, to listen to one another, and to remember one another. When brotherly love becomes insincere, when you can tell you're just going through the motions, when you have the "I don't want us," it's it's like cold outside. It's nearly fifty. I gotta say it's raining. We gotta stay inside. We gotta bundle up. It's going to take conviction. And that conviction to love one another comes from, this is the reason why your souls have been purified. The father wanted a bunch of children to love one another. It's a beautiful picture. It's not the only reason our souls have been purified, but it is part of the reason. We also have to realize, though, that we don't have this resource in ourselves. That This resource is not internal. That capacity to love, and this brings us to our third point, our capacity to love, which is part of our being persuaded, we're commanded to. We have the conviction to, but we also have the capacity to. And that's where we go in verses 23 to 25. So let's return to the main command in verse 23. We fervently love one another from the heart. And then here's that, that capacity in verse 24. For, You have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. Having been born again, you have been rebirthed. You've been given new life in Christ. You've been made a new creature. And this is the work which God does. We've already talked about that. He caused us to be born again. And it says, not of seed, which is imperishable, referring to biological sperm there. You haven't been reborn from biology see everything in this biological order is perishable the cursed order of the fallen world no matter where in its lifespan we know that every fetus will one day become a corpse right every kid Every child one day a cadaver. This cycle is inescapable. Corruptible seed. Biological birth. Leads to corruption. It leads to deterioration. It leads to decay. And this is why Peter thinks what he does next. For all flesh is like grass. And all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off. But the word of the Lord endures forever. See... All of this, life is perishable. It seems permanent at times, but it's perishable. But your new birth, if you are in Christ Jesus, is has a different source. It's not perishable seed, but imperishable. The living and enduring word of God. God's spirit uses God's word, exalting God's son to bring sinners to new life. James, another of Jesus' disciples, has a very... Similar idea in chapter 1, verse 18. In the exercise of his will, this is God brought us forth by the word of truth. That's how God brings us to life, through this word of truth, through the gospel. Paul in Romans 10, verse 17, So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. No one believes without hearing this imperishable seed. It's through God's spirit that you obey this enduring word, that you obey this truth. Pastor MacArthur describes that this is God's work. It's monergistic. It's from him. He says, the new birth is monergistic. The energy only comes from God. It is a work solely of the Holy Spirit. Sinners do not cooperate in their spiritual births any more than infants cooperate in their natural birth. The spirit works in our hearts so that we respond to this living and enduring word with faith. This is what Jesus was talking to Nicodemus about about the new birth. In John 3, verses 7 through 8. Do not be amazed that I said to you, Jesus said, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not not know where it comes from and where it's going. We see the effects of the wind. We don't know where it came from, where it's going. So is everyone who's born of the spirit. But the Spirit makes us alive through that living and enduring word of God. See, this new life, this new life, if you're in Christ Jesus, the new life that you have is distinct from everything in the creation order. It is imperishable. It is indestructible. It's eternal. Everything else will be destroyed, but not that new life. It's kind of like when fire ravages like we saw it in paradise. And someone goes into all that rubble and finds that diamond, right? That diamond survives. When God undoes everything in this creation order and remakes everything, that new you brought to life through the living and enduring word of God is that your new soul that's been purified remains forever, The stars of this creation are going to be a distant memory when our new lives, in a sense, have just begun. We're still in our infancy, ready to enjoy for eternity relationships of loving one another. This is where our capacity to love comes from. See, you can love supernaturally because you have been reborn supernaturally. Through the living and enduring Word, God the Spirit has given you a new life. With a supernatural capacity for for fervent, sincere love from the heart. The apostle John links together the birth we have from God with the necessity of our love. 1 John 3 verses 9 9 through 10, he makes the same kind of connections as Peter is. No one who is born of God practices sin. He starts in the big picture before talking about love. No one who is born of God practices sin. Because his seed abides in him. God's seed abides in him. God has given life to him. And he cannot sin because he is born of God. It means cannot sin doesn't mean he cannot sin once. But as a pattern of his life, he does not persist in sin. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. If you do not love your brother, you have not been born of God. 1 John three fourteen is similar. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. This is why we keep our commitments to one another. This is why we come on Sunday morning. This is why, if providence allows in your life, I know some might not be able to do the work, but most of us can attend care group. It's because we love one another. It's why we reach out during the week. It's why we pray for one another. It's why we are engaged with one another because we have been born of God. 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. We have been born with imperishable seed. So we don't have to despair when we are called to fervent love, to sincere love, To love from the heart because you have the resources from your new birth if you are in Christ Jesus. As I challenge my children to obey the command to love one another. God, by his grace, is going to use that in my children's life to realize that they don't have this life yet. As they struggle to love one another. They don't have this love. They have a love for themselves, a love for spending as much of their resources on themselves, doing whatever it is they want. See, the command, this command is a supernatural command, and this is why God gave a supernatural birth, at least some of the reason, for a sincere brotherly love. Now, I've already looked at it briefly. Peter reinforces his contrast between the perishable and imperishable by quoting Isaiah 40, verses 7 through 8. We studied it a couple Sundays ago in our uh, day-before-Christmas-Eve message here. It was a Christmas message. God's purpose in Isaiah 40 was for Israel to be comforted by hoping in the enduring word of God. As contrast to all human hope, and Israel struggled again and again with looking outside of God for salvation, looking to the surrounding nations, looking to a king, looking to their own works, putting hope in in flesh that perishes instead of hoping in the enduring word of God. So in Isaiah, the point is to hope in the enduring word of God. Peter's focus in this quotation is this contrast between perishable man and the imperishable word of God. The created word is wrapped up in the futility of curse, of Adam's sin. It's in, impermanent and it ends in death. But God's newly created order is sourced in his enduring word. God's word in our DNA never decays. like DNA goes bad as it's, uh, uh, it dies. It, it, it decays as, as, it, as it's shown the elements and air and everything touches it. I shouldn't talk about things I don't know about. DNA decays. I looked it up. But God's Word in our heart, God's Word is this new DNA in our heart, and it never decays. The gospel that the saints in Asia Minor heard and obeyed, the gospel that Peter the Apostle preached and believed and obeyed, the gospel that you believe here this morning is the enduring word of God. That's what Peter ends with. This is the word which was preached to you. That word, because it is living and enduring, it gives enduring life to those who have purified themselves through obedience to the faith. So, when we feel like, I don't want to love, or loving is hard, do I have to do this again? We have the supernatural resources for it. This love is the production of word-sown, spirit-born, new natures. When you love your fellow brothers and sisters who are also word-sown, spirit-born, you're not doing something contrary to what's natural, but what is your new nature? That is your new life because of God's grace. See, you're embracing what is eternal and enduring within you? What has been placed there by God's grace? You are putting on the robes of love that you're going to be comfortable in for all eternity. My children, talking talk about a lot this morning, have this newfound fascination with warm fuzzy bathrobes. And they want to wear them all the time. When, 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 when we love one another, that is going to be the outfit we're going to wearing, be wearing for eternity. Our hearts are going to be so wide open to one another. Fervently, earnestly for eternity. And we have this capacity because we've escaped this grass life, right? This flower falling off life, this decaying life. We have participated really in the infinite life. Peter talks about in Second Peter how we have. Partaken of the divine nature. That does not mean that we have become gods, of course, but that through our union with Christ, we have supernatural power to love one another. At least there's an application there. Peter's flesh was like grass. History's proven it. All those saints in Asia Minor, their life is like grass. They're gone. They're persecutors. Life was like grass too. And so is ours. But God's word endures forever. When God saves us, when he purifies our souls, he makes a new creature whose joy for eternity will be fervently loving one another. So in your relationships now, you have no excuse not to love one another. We have the capacity. Being born through that living and enduring word of God. By God's grace, you have the conviction. You have a newfound resolve to say, this is what I was saved for. Yes, it's hard. Yes, it's messy. Yes, I may need to make a relationship right. But you have the resolve because you've been commanded to love one another fervently from the heart. Let's pray. Father, your whole plan of salvation, the fact that we can call you Father, it began in your heart and that you imagined um, millions of adopted children who would bring you glory by reflecting your glory in the same way that your son reflects your glory. As we become like him as we have his love, as his spirit inside us, Gives us the capacity to love as he loved. Father, what a beautiful uh, picture. Lord, it's by this love that that the world knows that we're your disciples. Father, you have us go through very hard uh, things. Lord, some of us may be going through them now. I pray that you would help us as a church to demonstrate through the fervency The earnestness and the constancy of our love that we are your disciples, that we have been born through your living and enduring word, Lord. I pray, Father, that this would renew our convictions, that it would strip away excuses, Lord, that we would be resolved to love one another with sincerity. Pray, Father, that that would be demonstrated even this. Morning, as we break for snack time, it would be, be demonstrated in our conversations with one another. Lord, as we talk about how our hearts are with you, the struggles we're facing, Lord, it would be carried out in this upcoming week. It would be done through 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 many emails, through time and care groups, through phone calls, and it would be sp- the be evidenced in prayers for one another. Lord, the, the picture here is beautiful. Father, you have a wonderful plan. We're humbled to be part of it, that, to, think that, to think that what you purchased with your son's blood was our purification so that we could earnestly love one another. Lord, may that be the evidence of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.